So, Father God, we bless you in this place today that we were in debt. We had a debt we had no hope of paying. And we bless you that you did not say to us, work your way out of it. For we would have had no hope. But you sent your only son who paid our debt. He was our ransom. And now because of that, Lord God, we have new life. And here's my prayer, Lord God, that no one would leave here today without receiving the ransom paid by your son, Jesus Christ. God, would you save souls in this house today? Would you bring sinners back home? Would you add to your church? Say that in that I'm available to you. Speak, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Last week, we began a two-part series simply called Love Is. Love Is. We noted that Jesus Christ said in John chapter 13, by this will all people know you're my disciples, not by your amount of knowledge, not by the arguments you have on Facebook, not by your political positions, but by this will all people know that you are the real deal followers of me by the love that you have for one another. Theologians call love the penultimate New Testament virtue. I tend to agree because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, um, Paul says, now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. It's interesting, 1 Corinthians 13 falls right smack dab in the middle of Paul talking about spiritual gifts. He begins by talking about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and ends by talking about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. By the way, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, when you were baptized by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, you were given gifts. And yet right in the middle of talking about spiritual gifts, Paul says, if we have not love... We are nothing. So our gifts are to flow out of love. Love. Writing to the Galatians, Paul gives the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about what the Spirit-filled life looks like. And as he gives these fruit of the Spirit, which, by the way, I don't think is a comprehensive list. For example, humility is not on there. It's just kind of a, a runway to get us started. The leadoff batter to the fruit of the Spirit is love, then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love is the penultimate New Testament virtue. Oh, they may say a lot of things about me, but may they never say, I don't love. If that's the case, then when I sit in the presence of God, I, I have to know that one of the things I'm going to be held accountable for 
as a follower of his, is my stewardship of love. To be an unloving Christian is to be a contradiction in terms, an oxymoron. So what we've been exploring in this mini-series that we'll return back to at some point is what does love look like? Last week, we looked at the marriage of Hosea with Gomer as a window of how God loves us. I won't take the time to recount that. But this week, I want to talk about another dimension of love, a dimension of love that I've never heard a message preached on before. I've heard it be a point or a sub-point, but I, I grew up in the church. And for all the thousands of sermons I've heard, I've never heard a full sermon dedicated to this one face of love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is giving descriptions of love. And one of the ways he describes love is, he says, love is kind. What does it mean to be kind? To help us with this, I want us to look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, I'll read the whole chapter to us. It's just 13 verses, but look with me beginning in verse 1. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him, here it is, kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of uh, Amiel at Lodabar. By the way, you might want to underline the word Lodabar. We'll unpack it in just a few moments. Then, verse 5, King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Don't fear, for I will show you, here it is again, kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat, underline this phrase, at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then, verse 9, the king said to Ziba, called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, here it is again, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always, here it is again, at the king's table. Oh, by the way... He was lame in both his feet. 
When my grandfather was nine years old, so this would have been 1923, my grandfather was living in Conover, North Carolina, and as my grandfather tells it, it's one of my favorite stories I ever told, um, he got ticked off at his parents at the age of nine because, at least in his interpretation, he got spanked for something he didn't do. So my grandfather did what any nine-year-old would have done. He promptly packed his bags and ran away all the way to Savannah, Georgia. 1923. Ticked off, got spanked for something he says he didn't do, moved away to Savannah, Georgia. Got a job working at a restaurant owned by a white woman. He, at the age of nine, negotiates with this white woman because he understood that she had some, room, some rooms for rent above the restaurant. And he says, I'd, I'd love to work here and uh, also pay you rent out of uh, what I'll receive for working here for one of your rooms. She agrees to it. And he does that for four years, from the age nine to the age of 13. 1923 to 1927. At the age of 13, he decides, I should probably go home now. Uh, Calls the white woman who he'd been working with, working for, says, I'm leaving. Um, I don't know if he put in a two-week notice or what, but whatever his last day was, I'm leaving on such and such a date. Uh, The day comes, last day at work for him to leave, right? As he's about to clock out, um, um, this woman, happens to be white, says, hold on. She comes back with a fistful of money, gives it to him. He says, what's this for? She says, it's all the rent you've ever paid me over the last four years. Nineteen twenty-seven. You know, I remember I, I adored my grandfather. He died in nineteen ninety-five, and um, man, adored him. And I remember sitting at the table with him, and his brothers would be around the table, or um, some of his family members, and they would start talking about what it was like growing up in the Jim Crow South or in the Civil Rights Movement. And I would always kind of watch as, um, as his family members, whatever, would start chiming in, saying unfavorable stuff about white people. My grandfather, I never heard him say anything unfavorable about white people. He had nothing but esteem for them. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out why. What transformed his thinking about a group of people was one act of kindness. I want to talk to you today about the power of kindness. Kindness is one of those words we, we hear oftentimes. In fact, I almost had my kids sit in on this one. They, they, they need to hear this word. Praise God for podcasts. Um, kindness is one of those words you, you hear a lot, but it, kindness is sort of like a Cheeto. You, you know what it is. You just don't know how to define it. That's going to mess with y'all for a while. Y'all, gonna, y'all ain't going to hear nothing else in this sermon. You're going to be like, what is a Cheeto? Well, what is a Cheeto? It tastes good, but what is it? What does it mean to be kind? 
Paul helps us with this. And I hope this illustration doesn't mess you up. It's actually from the Greek. Uh, when, when Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is kind, or when he says in Galatians chapter 5 that one of the fruit of the Spirit is uh, kindness, the Greek word for kindness, I hope this doesn't mess you up, it was actually a word that was used of wine that had aged. It was used of wine that had mellowed. It had mellowed to the point where its acidic edge was softened. It spoke of wine that was no longer blunt, abrasive. It's kindness. Kindness is the bedside manner of a doctor who sits with you even as she has to tell you some unfavorable news, but does it in a way in which she comes across as an aged Cabernet. Kindness. Kindness is a woman being dragged who had just been caught in adultery, staring Jesus eye to eye. And it's Jesus speaking the truth, sin no more, but doing it in a way that's mellowed. Kindness. Kindness is who God is. Romans chapter 2 verse 4, Paul says, it is the kindness of of God that leads us to repentance. If I were to try, just based on my study of kindness, to, to give us a working definition of, of what it means to be kind, here's my shot at a definition. Will you look at it with me? I would define kindness as the sweet disposition, the aesthetically pleasing gift wrapping, that encases such glorious gifts as goodness, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. What's, what's challenging as you just etymologically do a study on kindness, what, what hits you is, is that kindness is kind of this junk drawer. And in this junk drawer is goodness, mercy, grace, forgiveness. So that, I'll make the statement, I'll come back to you. Kindness is both the gift and the wrapping. And God is calling us to be people of love. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is kind. Here's my hypothesis. I believe that Christians are losing their voice in the marketplace. That the world is shutting us out. Not because of our convictions. Not because of our beliefs per se, although that is happening. But the world just doesn't see us as being kind. 
Herb Cain of the San Francisco of the San Francisco Chronicle said this. Will you look at it with me? <laughs> the trouble with born again Christians is that they are in even bigger pain the second time around. Catherine Whitehorn, a British journalist, says it this way. Why do born-again people so often make you wish they'd never been born the first time? Some of the biggest pains in the neck are Christians. It's not so much what they say. It's how they say it. And I, and I just feel called of God just to give this word during political season. I love it. Multi-ethnic church, which means in our ethnic diversity, there's, theologic, there's theological diversity. Some of you all believe in speaking in tongues. Some of you all talk in tongues. Others of you are cessationists. Others of you have no idea what a cessationist is. And it's beautiful. It's great. I love that we're all here. Some of you are staunch Republicans. Some of you are staunch Democrats. Some of you are independents. It's great. I love that people can't look at abundant life and say, that's the Republican church or that's the Democratic church. I actually love that. So I want to encourage us, have our political convictions, but for God's sake, be kind about it. Kindness. You and I live in a culture that's devoid of kindness. On the one extreme of kindness is simply what I would call meanness. And we see this uh, in three primary sectors. We see this in the rising racial tensions and whether it's not the, the horrific acts that were, that have been done by uh, either um, lone acting African Americans who just do these immoral things of uh, killing police officers. That is a part of the culture of meanness or uh, maybe some renegade cops are certainly not indicative of the whole who have acted in certain ways. And um, that's certainly a part of the culture of meanness. Uh, we, we have, we're seeing meanness kind of spike and rise racially. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We also see it politically. You know, part of the problem, and I'm not saying what you should believe about Donald Trump. I, I think we would all say he can come across at times as being a little unkind. And we also see this, and let me just park right here for a moment. I see this with so many Christians when it comes to texting, emails, social media. There's something about a screen and the measure of ambiguity it gives us that allows us to be what the Corinthians accused Paul of being bold in our letters. We just fire off an email. Or, or we go to someone's blog page. Most blogs, the comment section, ain't winning awards for, comment, for, for, for kindness. It, it's happened to me over the years, you know. People will send a sharp email to me. There's something about receiving a sharp email. When that happens, one of the things that I'm always reminded to is one of the qualifications of, of being an, an, an elder. Paul says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. 
So this tit-for-tat, back-and-forth thing, I may give one response, Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So what happens is, it's interesting, in my experience, someone will send you a really strong email, you pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I'd love to meet with you. They sit in your office, and one of the things you realize is, in person, it's almost like a completely different person. They're not as strong, not as bold when you sit down with them face to face. So there's something about screens, I don't know what it is, that that kind of promotes and provokes unkindness. You've got to be careful of that. Okay, so we live in a culture devoid of kindness. On the one extreme extreme is meanness. Watch it now. On the other extreme, surprise, surprise, is niceness. Hear me. God never calls us to be nice. He calls us to be kind. There's a difference. To help us with this, I want to exhort you to read. It's one of the best books I've read. It's by my colleague at Biola University, uh, Dr. Barry Corey. He wrote a phenomenal book called Love Kindness. If you want to unpack some more on what kindness is, read his incredible book. It's kind of a narrative. It's not so much a didactic approach, but a narrative on kindness. I want you to look at what he says about the difference between meanness, kindness, and niceness. He says it best. Dr. Corey writes, our increasingly shrill sounds in the public square are not strengthening our witness, but weakening it. Bullhorns and fish shaking, mustering armies and using war-waging rhetoric, he's talking about Christians, are far less effective than the way of kindness. Treating those with whom we disagree with charity and civility. That doesn't mean we don't stand courageously for what we deem right, true, and just. But kindness is not incompatible with courage. Kindness embodies courage, although courage does not always embody kindness. It's profound. So so the kind person is the courageous person. But you can be courageous and unkind, i.e. mean. Watch his analogy. Too often our centers are firm on conviction, but our edges are also hard in our tactics. This way is characterized by aggression or what I call meanness. Watch him. On the other hand, there's the way of niceness. Whereas aggression has a firm center and hard edges, niceness has soft edges and a spongy center. Niceness may be pleasant, but it lacks conviction. It has no soul. So let me just say, in this audience right now, all of us are weighted to one of those two extremes. Some of us are sharks. And it happens, we have a conversation right now. I ain't going to pray much about it. We're just going to go for it. We smell blood. We're going to deal with this. We're going to deal with it now. Others of us, we're just so nice. Something happens. We run, we run a low-grade fever. We never talk about it. We never deal with it. I mean, somebody can do something crazy to you, and the best you can come up with is, okay, okay. We bite our tongues. We never have hard conversations. 
That's being nice. So people think you're okay with them, but you're really not. You lack courage. The way of kindness, firm center. I've got courage. I've got convictions. But it's wrapped in a mellow encasing. So I have the conversation. I speak the truth in love. That's the way of kindness. The unkind person will look at you with salad caught in your teeth and say nothing. The kind person will tell you something's wrong, but will do it in a loving way. That's the way of Jesus. Jesus was not mean, but he was not nice. It's like the great C.S. Lewis quote in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when they're asking, what is Aslan like? Is he safe? C.S. Lewis writes, he's not safe, but he's good. So this is Jesus. Says to the woman caught in adultery, go in peace and sin no more. Kindness. That's kindness. So that's what God calls us to. As we come to our text, finally, I just got three quick points I just want to jog through. David has just assumed the throne. He's just become king. And in verse 1, he kicks off by saying these astounding words. In verse 1, he says, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, this is something else because you would assume a new king, especially a king like David, who for 15 years ran for his life from Saul, you would think David would say, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? Because I want to kill him off. That's what new kings did. It's not what David says. David says, is there still anyone left of the house of God, of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness? Watch it now for Jonathan's sake. Now, I want you to underline the word kindness because the kindness, the word kindness, uh, the, the narrator's writing in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for kindness is hesed. H-E-S-E-D. Hesed. Hesed is oftentimes translated as loving kindness. It is used 127 psalms, times in the Psalms, and it's oftentimes translated as steadfast love. Has said, translated as kindness in our text, it speaks of not God's general love, but his covenantal love for his people. Has said is a love that never gives up, never gives out, never gives in. It is an unquitting, unrelenting, unceasing kind of love. It is a love, here it is now, that is not predicated on our performance. We see this in this text. David says, I want to show said kindness, for Jonathan's sake. In other words, the kindness he's about to show to Mephibosheth has nothing to do with Mephibosheth. He brings nothing to the table. He's lame. He's crippled. It ain't because he looks good. It's not because he would add value to David. In other words, he says, I want to show kindness because I entered into covenant with Jonathan. 
so that my, con- my kindness is not about you. It's not about your behavior. This is the first thing we understand about kindness. It has a higher moral vision. What do I mean by that? So many of us approach relationships from a quid pro quo, transactional, performance perspective. In other words, you do something for me, I'll respond in kind. When we do that, the problem is when people don't perform up to our standards, we're now positioned to treat them in ways that are unkind. So that for the believer, our kindness is not rooted in your performance. But it is rooted in the reality that there's a higher moral vision in play. In other words, I am kind to you, not because you deserve it. But I am kind to you, if for no other reason, than you have been created in the imago Dei. The image of God. If I was lecturing in a classroom some way, somewhere, I would say that the problem with many of us in relationships is we approach people from a utilitarian perspective. We treat people as tools who perform a service for us. But again, the problem becomes when they cannot perform, I now am ready to be unkind. But what if I realize there's a higher moral vision at play? Let me show you how this works. So I had a measure of angst when I moved to the Bay Area because, you know, I'm reading all this, all the statistics and stuff. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about the need to go to a barber. I'm, I know some of you are like, you don't need to go to a barber. I need to go to a barber. Um, and so I'm like, man, where do I find the black man's country club around here? Where, where do I find a good salt of the earth barbershop in the Bay when everything I'm reading is, you know, we're dwindling here. And so thanks to Elder Keith, Elder Keith turns me on to this barbershop. It's actually a couple blocks from my house. I, I uh, set the appointment to go to this barber my second time there. And this barber, um, we had a 9 o'clock appointment. He didn't get there till 10.15. That's a black barbershop. And so, you know, I'm calling him, you know, 9.15. Oh, you know, it's, it's the classic. I'm 10 minutes out. You know, and uh, just all kinds of nonsense. And he was very forthright with me. And, you know, he had gotten tipsy the night before, was hungover. And now I'm starting to go, I don't know if I need you to cut my hair right now if you are hungover. Well, at the same time, I'm starting to get ticked. And it's 10:15. We had this appointment at 9. And the Holy Spirit said to me, What if this barber is in your life, not ultimately to cut your hair? What if this barber is in your life because he doesn't know me, pastor? And I need you to be the fifth gospel to him. What if that barista... At that coffee shop that you stop at every day on your way to work is not ultimately in your life to fix you drinks. But what if we had an elevated vision of humanity? What if, what if you literally understood the sovereignty of God and that God planted you and placed you in that neighborhood 
Not ultimately so that you could get a good return on your investment, but what if you really saw your neighbors as an opportunity to walk in that mission field? Now the stage is set for kindness. So now I sit in the barber's chair after having that higher moral vision and I see him not as some soulless thing that exists to perform a service for me. But I see him as someone that God has assigned for me to be in his life. So now I can give him a $10 tip. Even though he did nothing to deserve it. See, this right here, it ain't the game. It's just the huddle. The game is out there. And what earns you credibility with people is when you're kind. Now watch this. Here's kindness. Barbara walks in. Hey, brother, I'm your guy. I ain't going anywhere, but just help me out in the future. Does nine o'clock mean 1015? So we have a conversation. Then I give him a $10 tip. That's kindness. Kindness is not just taking it on the chin. But kindness does not treat people as mere objects. David says, I want to show someone kindness. So the first thing we see about kindness has a higher moral vision. Second thing we see about kindness is that it restores human dignity. David says, is there anyone out there from the house of Saul that I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? Ziba says, yes, actually there's, there is someone out there. His name is Mephibosheth. I don't have time to get into all of it, but if you understand anything about Mephibosheth, this is one of the guys in scripture who just can't seem to catch a break. You got anybody in your life like that who they just can't seem to catch a break? That's Mephibosheth. At the age of five, his nurse drops him. He gets crippled in both of his feet. Uh, add to that, um, his grandfather, Saul, is actually overthrown. So now our text says he's living in Lodabar. And the reason why that's important is because Lodabar is Saul-friendly territory. Mephibosheth knows what's coming. If David just operates according to the tradition of kings, he knows he's about to get whacked. So he says, let me hide out here. He's filled with fear. Mephibosheth is taken before David. He's shaking in his boots. David tells him, relax, I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of Jonathan, your father. And then these words, I want you to always, as if that's not enough, I want you to always eat at the table with me. Now, this is important because one of the things that we understand about kindness is kindness is not just philanthropy. You can be philanthropic, write a bunch of checks, and be mean as the day is long. David is not just philanthropic with Mephibosheth. He is kind, and he's kind in that we see, Mephibosheth, I'm not just going to give you a house. I'm not just going to give you land. I want you in my presence at the table, at the king's table. And when he's sitting at the, at the table, meal after meal after meal, what's happening? Dignity is being restored to this crippled individual. That's what kindness does. It gives dignity to people. 
When my kids were real little, we, we got to get back to this. We had a routine every Saturday morning. I would, uh, I'd take them out to uh, the local diner there in Memphis called Blue Plate Diner. And I remember one time I took my oldest son, uh, Quentin, to the Blue Plate Diner. And Saturday morning, man, and, uh, man, this waitress, this, son, this Saturday morning, she was a real treat. She acted like she didn't want to wait on us, messed up our order two, three times, uh, was short with us. Uh, and she was just horrible. Came time to leave the tip. I wrote a big fat zero. Took my son Quentin, got in the car, drove down the road. At that point, the Holy Spirit, being the ever nuisance he can be, started messing with me. He said, Pastor, you know what the word gratuity means? He says it comes from the same family words that we get our word grace from. Pastor, you know what grace means? It means to give someone something they don't deserve. Pastor, this woman didn't meet your standard and you gave her what she deserved. Now, do I treat you that way? So the Holy Spirit then said, I need you to go to ATM right now. And he dropped a number in my spirit. He says, get out $60. Took out the $60, made a U-turn back to the Blue Plate Diner. Holy Spirit says, go in and ask for her by name and give it to her in person and apologize for how you treated her. Now, Lord, I got a problem with that one. (laughs) Talk to the manager, ask the manager to to go get her. She comes. I says, ma'am, will you forgive me for the way I treated you? Here's $60. She immediately starts crying. She then starts telling me about the divorce she's going through. How her husband's just left her. And that sparks a 20 to 25 minute beautiful conversation. She's weeping. She's crying. She asked for my forgiveness. What broke her wasn't a quid pro quo relationship. What broke the hardened heart was kindness. Do you want to use, be used of God to get to your neighbor? To get to your coworker? They don't need to hear many of them John 3.16 out the gate. How about just being kind? You want to be an effective witness in the marketplace? Try the landscape of kindness. Finally, kindness transforms, changes people. So here's Mephibosheth. He's seated at the table. Let me just fast forward real quickly. Second Samuel chapter 16, something horrific happens. Uh, David's son Absalom performs a coup. Uh, David is now forced to run for his life. Uh, Mephibosheth is actually asked to go with him. Mephibosheth doesn't go with him. Ziba actually lies on Mephibosheth and tells David uh, he's actually holding out in, in hopes that you'll actually lose. This cuts David to the core. David is really hurt by Mephibosheth's actions. David uh, withstands the coup. He now comes back in Second Samuel chapter 19. Uh, he has a meeting with Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth. He's disappointed with Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, when David sees him, David's astounded because Mephibosheth looks completely disheveled. He hasn't shaved. He looks emaciated. David says to him, what's wrong? He goes, man, your servant has been fasting ever since you left. And now what David realizes is Ziba lied. And actually Mephibosheth, this grandson of Saul's predecessor who tried to kill him, Mephibosheth actually shows profound loyalty to the enemy, David. What changed him? Kindness. Kindness transforms. All of us are familiar with Chick-fil-A. Praise God for Chick-fil-A. Maybe we're familiar with the big spat that Chick-fil-A got into with our friends in the gay community a few years ago. What you may not realize is a guy by the name of Shane Windemeyer, a gay activist, who had really been aggressive with Chick-fil-A and said some very unkind things. He wrote an article in the Huffington Post, this unsaved gay activist about his experience behind the scenes with Chick-fil-A. Listen to what he says. It's not often that people with, with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. We see this failure to listen and learn in our government, in our communities, and in our families. Dan, Kathy, and I would together try to do better than each of us had experienced before. Dan, Kathy, the head of Chick-fil-A. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for campus pride to stop protesting. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns and sought first to understand, not to be understood. Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. Listen to what he says. Guys, unsaved gay activist. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Dan expressed regret, here it is, and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. Watch it. But he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. Friends, we got a lot of work to do. I just want us to fasten our seatbelts. In the years to come, we're going to talk about some very hard things. What does it look like to walk with our friends in the gay community, the way of kindness, just using them as an example? Christians have been historically mean. But the way of niceness is kind of this gooey, oh, just do you. Kindness is, no, I actually see it differently. But can we have dinner together? Can we hang out together? Can we get coffee together? I remember hanging out with one of my gay friends, man, you know, working out with him. Sometimes it was uncomfortable. But the way of kindness is the ability to say, I see it differently, but I love you at the same time. That's how we walk in love. Now, as Cormac and the team comes, here's the gospel. If you haven't picked up on it yet, we're all Mephibosheth. 
we brought nothing to the table. Lame, crippled, handicapped by sin. God, in an astounding act of his said and grace, says, I want you at my table. And I want you at my table, not because you look good or because you're smart or because you've made right decisions. I want you at my table because I love you and I've created you. Romans 2, 4, look at it with me says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We are saved not by guilt, not by shame, not by condemnation. We are saved by the kindness of God and God is kind to us in that on the one hand, he'll tell us the truth. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God who sees all, knows everything we've ever done, are doing and will ever do to break his heart. He sees it all and yet here's his incredible kindness. He sees it, he calls it out, yet he covers it with the blood of his son Jesus. Now if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you mean to tell me you're gonna turn that down? You're going to turn down his kindness. So I want to make two calls today. I believe there is someone today who needs to, for the first time in your life, receive the kindness of God. Not the judgment, not the condemnation, but the kindness of God. It's waiting on you. So I want to make a call for you. In just a few moments, I'm going to pray, and I believe you're going to come. But I also want to make a call for those of you who would say, I am a follower of Jesus, but man, I, I, I'm not kind. I need to, I'm nice, which means I don't really say the things that need to be said or I'm mean. I just need help. I want us to be known as that community who loves. And when they think of abundant life, they think of kind people. So if, if, if this has been especially a weighty message for you, I'd love to pray for you. Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, may we be known as those kind people. May that's what we be known for. Lord, my prayer today is not a single person would leave here without saying yes to you. So by your kindness, walk the aisles and draw to yourself. All of us are Mephibosheth. Bring us to your table. Grab our hearts, for you have our hearts today. Strengthen us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.